Hi, this is Dr. Linda Mintel. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast of the Dr. Linda Mintel Show. Our website is filled with more encouraging interviews, all accessible at MyFaithRadio.com. everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Linda Mintel Show. I'm your host, Dr. Linda Mintel, the Relationship Doctor, and I'm here along with my co-host, Chris Weigel. Every weekend, Chris, we're here, we're doing life together, and we're so glad that you've joined us. That's right, Dr. Linda. This is, in fact, a very special weekend. Uh, Our country celebrates Memorial Day on Monday, and for so many people, this weekend will be filled with backyard grilling and picnics and that type of thing. But I wonder how many of us actually remember why we celebrate this holiday. I think that's a good point, because I think it's lost on a lot of people. This is really a sobering weekend. And you're right, we celebrate with picnics and barbecues, but really we're remembering. It's a time when a lot of us will visit graveyards of family members uh, who have died and friends who we've lost while they were in the service and in some branch of the military. And so it isn't exactly the most happy weekend, but Mm. we do celebrate their lives during this time. That is so true. Okay, Dr. Linda, I'll uh, take this opportunity now to be the uh, program historian. Well, you do that better than I do. Okay, (laughs) here we go. We celebrate Memorial Day on the last Monday of May each year, of course. And the actual origin was something that was called Decoration Day after the American Civil War, when a day was set aside to honor the fallen during that conflict. And both the North and the South had separate holidays, so they actually uh, merged to create what we know now as Memorial Day. You know, when you were saying all this, I was thinking of those people that go out on the street and ask people, what is the meaning of Memorial Day? And I just wonder what they would say. So, (laughs) um, and this is what is kind of weird. Isn't there some kind of a car race that always happens on Memorial Weekend? Is there? Very impressive, Dr. Linda. (laughs) It's a guess. It's a guess. (laughs) (laughs) The Indianapolis 500 has been, yes, been run. Big one. It's been run in conjunction with Memorial Day since 1911. And it's, uh, it's run on the same Sunday, the preceding Sunday of the actual federal holiday. And you know, when I was a child, I remember, especially seeing this in church, there were little plastic red flowers that people would wear. There were little poppies, I think Mm. they were. So I checked on that, and although you don't see those too often anymore, I'm guessing that many of our listeners may also remember wearing a red poppy on their lapel to church for Memorial Day services. And it turns out that back in 1918, a YWCA worker, Moina Michael, wore a silk poppy and gave them uh, out to her fellow workers. The National American Legion picked up the idea, and in 1920, they adopted the poppy as their official symbol of remembrance. That's unbelievable. Dr. Linda, I thought I was the historian. Yes. Sounds like you're the historian. Well, that's all today's I know. Program. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this weekend also has a very personal meaning for you and your family. Uh, you lost someone. I did. I had a brother who was drafted into the Vietnam War as an Army officer. He survived that war, Chris, and he mm-hmm. came home to his wife and his two-year-old son, and he had a child on the way, only to be the target of terrorism on a military mission overseas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you, I'll never forget that day, and that's why this day is so important for me to remember. A uniformed officer showed up in our kitchen, and a lot of our listeners will have had experiences like that. He showed up to deliver the news that my brother's plane had been blown up and there were no survivors. 
And I know I'm not alone in this experience. So today we want to honor those who have fallen in the military and the families who have suffered such losses. Our topic then is going to be grief and how we deal with loss. After the break, Dr. Linda welcomes a special guest to the program to help us answer some difficult questions about loss and grieving. We'll be back with more of this special Memorial Day edition of the Dr. Linda Mental Show right after this break. Stay with us. Okay, let's be honest. There are times when we eat just because life is tense or the kids are driving you crazy or we feel anxious or insecure about a relationship with a friend or a spouse, right? Food might just be too available or I can't help myself or it feels so good to dive into the ice cream sundae. We have a million excuses, but the truth is sometimes we just eat out of emotion not need. You know, it happens to all of us. So how do we fix the problem? Well, here's a quick prescription, and it begins with press pause. If you follow this simple plan, you can say goodbye to mindless eating and hello to the joys of eating. When you press pause, you slow down and begin to listen to your body. Am I truly hungry? What's going on around me that makes me want to put something in my mouth? So here's how to pause. We're going to spell it out. The P stands for purpose, purpose to delay immediate gratification. Then the A stands for attend, attend to the moment, but also be mindful of the future and how your immediate decision might be the one you regret later. Next is the U, understand that your good intentions and even your willpower don't win the impulsive eating battle. You need a healthy dose of God help. Then the S, strategize, find ways to incorporate God's help You invite the Holy Spirit to work within you, and you'll discover his strength to improve your self-control. And then finally, the E, execute those changes. So to eat without emotion, press pause before you eat. If you'd like more on this simple plan, check out Dr. Linda's book, Press Pause Before You Eat, available online. You can win this battle. Welcome back to the Dr. Linda Mental Show and our special tribute of remembrance for our loved ones and friends who have fallen while serving in our military services. Remember, you can always check out Dr. Linda's blogs on BeliefNet and her website. And also follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, thanks, Chris. I'm very happy to have my friend Jennifer Sisney join us today. Jennifer is a professional counselor, life coach, mediator, trainer, and author. And she speaks extensively and provides training, counseling, and coaching in the field of grief, crisis, and trauma through the Institute for Compassionate Care. So you can see why she's a perfect guest for today's show. Jennifer serves as faculty for the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. It's a mouthful, Jennifer. It is. In addition, she serves as director of the Grief, Crisis, and Disaster Network of the American Association of Christian Counselors and is the clinical director for the crisis response team of the United States Concealed Carry Association. Woo. I think I'm going to have to ask you about that. Jennifer is co-author of The First 48 Hours, Spiritual Caregiving as First Responders, Grief Following Trauma, Understanding Suicide, Effective Tools for Prevention, Intervention, and Survivor Support, and Spiritual and Psychological First Aid. So, Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be with you, Linda. Well, just from that introduction, it's very um, clear that you've had a lot of You've written a lot, you've learned a lot, you've had a lot of life lessons, you've been counseling people for years in the area of grief and loss, and I'm sure that um, there are a lot of people listening, while they maybe not have had a military person 
die in their family. They certainly have had grief in some aspect or another. So I have found that one of the, the things I notice is that there's a lot of misconceptions about grief. And people are uncomfortable. What do we do when somebody's grieving? How do I talk to them? And so I'm hopeful that you're going to help us sort through this grief thing. I'm certainly going to try. You know, you're right, Linda. Most people don't get formal lessons, training, information about grief. And yet it's the single most universal human experience we have because we will all have loss and we'll have grief. So so let's just start there because what is what would you say is when people say normal grieving? Oh, you know, that's so hard, Linda, because there's such a wide range of things that are normal. When you think about how many different people there are in terms of our gender, our age, our personalities, our cultural background, our religious or faith background. So we have all these differences. And then how many different situations of loss we will experience even as individuals. There's such a wide range of what's normal. So there's no one sort of prototypical or standard normal grief. Except you hear a lot, Jennifer, people say, well, you should be over that by now. Or isn't it a little bit too long for you to still be talking about that? So is there like a time frame? You know, that's the number one question I get when I'm working with someone from their friends and family is, shouldn't they be over that by now? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the answer is no, that this process of grief actually takes longer than we think, especially in our society. Today, we have sort of this society where we feel like we want everything instantly. That fast food, I want it now, easy button society, we think that people need to just, okay, three days bereavement leave, couple weeks, shouldn't you be better? Well, grief is a really extensive process. And the worst of it, um, depending on the loss, how close you were to the person, if it was sudden and unexpected or you had some time to see it coming, uh, it can take anywhere from six months to a year to get through the worst of it. But some people grieve considerably for even a few years. And for some situations, like a suicide, we understand that the grief process, even that acute grief, can go on for three to five, even up to seven years. So if somebody comes into your office and they're concerned about their loved one or they're concerned about themselves and they say, you know, I had this loss, and let's say it was maybe the death of a parent, what do you look for in that person to say, okay, this is what we would consider sort of normal grieving? Because you and I know that there is a diagnosis in our statistical manual, the DSM-5, that, that people look at and say it goes beyond normal and it becomes a problem where people actually get stuck in grief. It, that's true. So what do you look for when somebody comes in um, to say this is, this is okay? I look for a couple things. Um, I'm not going to off the top of my head just quickly say anybody's yes, they're doing it right or no, they're not. I want to get to know them. I want to get to know their loss. First of all, can they articulate what they're feeling inside? Can they talk to me within their own capacity about how they're experiencing this loss, their perception of it, their experience of it? And are they making some movement? Now, it doesn't always just get better. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. But are they processing it? Are they dealing with it? Or are they trying to avoid those feelings of pain and discomfort? And the big thing for me about whether a person is grieving normally or it's a red flag is are we starting to see some dysfunction in their life or are they using unhealthy coping to avoid the pain? Those are the first red flags. 
And But if somebody really is being intentional uh, about processing their grief, I'm not worried if it's taking a little longer than their friends and family think it should, because for some people, that's a longer process. So if they're doing something like using alcohol to not feel it during the evening, or they're taking a medication to sleep at night on a constant basis, maybe for months and months and months and months, that would be a sign to you that maybe the coping mechanisms aren't there. Absolutely. Certainly, self-medication with drugs and alcohol is one of the biggest red flags. Um, I even encourage the people I work with not to drink at all for a period of time. Now, I get some pushback on that. Some people like their glass of wine, but even those people who have been able to drink responsibly or something like that, I always say you never know when you're grieving, when something can get out of control. You might be using this in a way that's not healthy or not helpful. And then other things that are even productive things in our life, like work, we can start to overdo that. People start to work day and night and use that to avoid the pain. But we don't want to feel that kind of horrible. I know that I know that the first few nights, especially, you know, you're thinking, you first you think this can't be real. Um, and so you go through this stage of, I know when they, when they told us about our brother, we, we were in that shock phase where we just thought this can't be real. But then you have this kind of recurrent feeling of, it's so awful, I don't even know if I can think about it. So what do you say to people when they're in that stage of just the really intense, uh, immediate part of that loss where the reality hits and you have to figure out how to feel that kind of pain? Well, we call that acute grief. And it is. It's just waves sometimes of mm-hmm. the most difficult sadness and pain. But it isn't going to be that way forever. So I often tell people, if you can face into that, if you can be able to experience that, it will diminish And that pain won't be as bad. But if you try to run from it and try to avoid it, you can only do that for so long. And it tends to actually get more difficult and you expend more energy and have more pain trying to sort of push those feelings away than if you just allow yourself to feel that sadness. And I just think that's so key for everyone who's listening to understand that while it hurts tremendously, it's an important part of the healing process that you have to feel it. But say a little bit about the difference, because I know the difference between having somebody in our family who was older, and it was somewhat expected for that person to die, or someone who's been struggling with a terminal illness where maybe there's cancer, and you're preparing, they're moving in from, you know, independence, and then maybe into some palliative care and into hospice versus the sudden death that people experience. And they are different, Linda. I don't like to get into a grief contest where we go, oh, well, this loss is better than this loss, and this loss is worse than this one. But they are different. So let's Mm -hmm. say that. And one of the big reasons is you just described these long-term illnesses where we have anticipatory grief. We actually begin that grief process before the person actually dies. We begin our letting go, and we also have time for goodbyes. We have time to say the things we wanted to say, to reminisce, to really connect to that person in special ways. That's very different than I say goodbye to you this morning, fully expecting that Mm -hmm. I'll see you again this evening. And sudden, unexpected, or traumatic loss, it's almost like a blow you didn't see coming. Mm -hmm. You don't have time to prepare for it. And it 
throws you off balance more. It's the weight of that is so sudden that it can be more difficult, especially in those early stages, to even understand that it really happened to make it real. And I, I'm I'm just realizing that as we're talking about this, there's so many military families that are listening to this this weekend and thinking, yes, that's exactly because in the military, you still expect your your person to go off into war and to come back, even though you know there's not there's a possibility they might not. But nobody is really prepared for that news of that that officer sitting in your kitchen or that person coming to your door and telling you the the news you'd never want to hear. So I'm glad you said that because it is a little bit of a different experience. I like what you said about it's not a competition of which grief is is different. Well, I want to do a couple of things, and I know we have to take a break in a minute or two, but I want us to talk briefly about the five stages of grief and just talk about that, what those are and what people should um, be aware of in their experience. Well, Linda, those five stages of grief that you talk about actually is just one model of grief. It was the model by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And what a lot of people don't realize is she did her research study actually on people looking at their own imminent death. She did that study with terminally ill patients coming to terms with the fact that they were going to die. She didn't even know at the time that it would be generalized uh, to all grief the way it has. And I think it's still very relevant. But what we want people to know is that those stages aren't linear and neat and that people go through all of them in an orderly fashion. In fact, some people won't go through some things at all. They'll stay a long time in one. And it's maybe let me go through all five stages within a 10 minute period. So know that those are all normal things that I experience, but not in the same pattern. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. And then I want you to tell us what those five stages are that are not linear, that can come and go and can come in waves and are not this um, expected step-by-step grief process that a lot of us have thought to be possible. Because I think it's very important for us to understand what we're going to be experiencing when we go through grief. So stay with us. More with Jennifer Sisney. We're talking about grief and loss this Memorial Day weekend. More in a moment. Are you a mom or a dad trying to do your best to raise a healthy weight child in an unhealthy eating culture? Do you often struggle with how to respond when your child asks if she is fat or if he needs to lose weight? Do you wonder what is normal and how do I best impact my child and his or her eating habits? Well, hi, I'm Dr. Linda Mental, and my book, Raising Healthy Kids in an Unhealthy World, teaches parents how to raise healthy kids in an overscheduled, fast food, video game world by making simple choices, easy changes, and instilling good habits that will improve everyone's life today and forever. Winner of the Mom's Choice Award, Raising Healthy Kids in an Unhealthy World will give you this confidence, the confidence you need to take charge of your child's eating and raise a healthy weight child. Raising Healthy Kids in an Unhealthy World. Available on Dr. Linda's website, drlindamental.com. And available online where books are sold. Dr. Linda Mintel's latest book, We Need to Talk, is available now in bookstores everywhere. Or visit her online at drlindahelps.com. drlindahelps.com. Well, welcome back to our program. This Memorial Weekend, we were remembering our friends and family who we've lost serving in our nation's military branches. And I can tell you from personal experience, this is one of the most difficult challenges any of us can face. 
And in all honesty, without my family's deeply held faith in God, I'm not sure that we would have ever come out on the other side. But today, my special guest is grief expert Jennifer Sisney. Jennifer, let's talk a little bit about the stages of grief that people feel, the different emotions that people feel when they're grieving. Yeah, and Linda, again, uh, the model that probably most people are familiar with are those five stages of grief that were described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from her research. And there are many other models, but they all have some similarities. And the first is denial. Some models call it shock or numbing, but ultimately it's where people are trying to come to terms with the reality of the loss, that it really happened, that that person is really gone. When you first hear the news, your mind just can't even handle that information, which is why you must go into that kind of shock. Yeah. And actually that psychological buffer is helpful to people. Mm -hmm. We often say, don't try to take it away from them too soon. Allow them to have that time because it means... I can't deal with the weight of that information right now. So when people say no, that's what they're doing. They're having that shock as a buffer because the weight of that is so heavy. It's so powerful that they can't absorb it all at once. Okay, so denial and shock. What's another stage or a group of emotions that people feel? Well, bargaining is one aspect of grief. And, of course, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's research were on terminally ill patients. So we see this a lot when we have a loved one that's seriously injured or ill. And you see people going, well, maybe if we just pray hard enough. Even if the doctors have said there's no hope or we've given up or this is terminal. Now, I'm not saying you should ever stop praying until someone is dead. But that bargaining is a what if, if only. Maybe it's not true. Even after death, for a short period of time, or if there's things that may be ambiguous that people may not have been able to confirm that loss, they may still be in it. Well, maybe it's not true. Well, you know, Jennifer, when my brother was was killed on that airplane, there was a point where we all started to do that because we could have brought my brother back for my other brother's wedding. And we all did this. Well, what if? Well, what if we had actually told him he had to stop the trip and come home early? And what if my brother had insisted that he'd been present for the wedding? Then he wouldn't be dead. And so that what if can go even in these military families when you think about if I had just delayed or he had been stopped a few moments, what if some customs agent would have held him and not put him on? There's so many things that go through your mind because you can't control it. And you want things to be different. And Lynn, that's exactly why. It's that desire to control it and the having to accept that we are powerless over this. And so know that especially in those early stages, the what if, if only bargaining can be very normal. So what about anger? Because I know a lot of people get angry. They do. And you know what? Some people don't have that much anger. Some people have a lot of anger. So it depends on the circumstance. And that anger can be directed in many places. We usually want to find a person or thing to blame. Sometimes that anger is directed at the person who died. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's directed at who we think caused that or might be to blame for that death. And many of us are angry at God. I know I was. I know I was really mad. I thought you could have diverted that plane. You could have stopped that bomb. You could have done something. I spent a lot of time yelling at God. And then I moved into the other stage, another stage that that you're going to talk about is depression. Yeah, and that's really where the full weight of what's happened hits you and you start to accept, okay, they're gone. And the full weight of the reality of that sadness and what it means for your life, that at least on this earth, you'll never see that person again. And then we experience not necessarily a clinical depression, Mm -hmm. but we start to experience 
the worst part of the pain, which is that longing and yearning for that person, the deep sadness at the separation. And I was so happy. It sounds really strange to say, but I was so glad that I could hear my father crying on the room above my bedroom when my brother died because I could hear him crying in agony. And it helped me in some very strange way because I heard him just letting all this sadness um, being expressed. It gave me permission as the daughter and as the, the sister of my brother to really let go of that sadness and that deep, deep grief that I was feeling at that time. But eventually we come around to some kind of acceptance, don't we? Well, and that's what we hope in a healthy grief process. And acceptance, Linda, does not mean that I forget the person. It doesn't mean It's as if the loss didn't happen. And it doesn't mean that we don't grieve for them or that we don't miss them. It means that I make more room in my life to have a new normal, to move forward, to reinvest that energy into the world in a new way, and know that even though they're gone, I can still have an abundant life. Well, Jennifer, what I'd like to do, we just got a few minutes left in the show, and I want to leave some encouragement to our listeners through the scripture, because Again, without faith, it is so difficult to grieve these kinds of losses and to be able to get up the next day and feel like I'm going to be okay. But we know that God doesn't promise that we're not going to have difficulty and loss and trials in this life, but he does promise his presence. So let's end with a number of scriptures if we could. Let's talk about uh, some of our favorites. So I'm going to start and then I'll let you give one. I'm going to start with 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. And this one says, Praise be to God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. And here's the part I love. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's a beautiful one, Linda. One of my favorites, and that I often use in teaching, is that passage from Ecclesiastes that from people are familiar with. To everything under the sun, there is a season. Mm. There is a time to weep, and there is a time to mourn, and there is a time to rejoice. And so what I love about that scripture is that that passage gives equal weight to both the joyful times and the sad times. It tells us that there is a time to give thanks And there's also a time to mourn. And I think we forget as Christians, and some people want to push people too quickly to say, give thanks in everything and be grateful to God. They want to skip through Mm -hmm. the sad parts. But the scripture says that's a part of life, too. And in fact, those who mourn will be comforted by God. And we know that the scripture tells us that that's a time when God will be close to us, that he is close to the brokenhearted. And that's a wonderful time for people to grow in faith, to understand grace in new and different ways, and even draw closer to God. That's a, just such a, a great reminder. And I want to end with one more, which is Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you away. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And I know that sometimes when you're experiencing a tremendous loss, it feels like you're going to be burned in the fire. It feels like you're going to be swept away. But as Jennifer so beautifully reminded us that there is a time to grieve and a time to mourn. And so let's remember this Memorial Day that we can take a few minutes. We can remember those who have gone before us, who have served our country and have given their life in the service of 
others so that we can be free. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm grateful that Jennifer Sisney stopped by to join us this weekend to help us understand the power of godly grief as we remember our loved ones and friends this Memorial Day weekend. Many thanks to our producer, Norm Mintel, our engineer, and my co-host, Chris Weigel, who makes the show a conversation. From all of us here at Faith Radio, we'll talk to you next weekend. In the meantime, remember, we're here, we're doing life together, and remember, it's better when you don't have to do it alone.